Thank you, and uh, welcome to this event. Um, I'm going to chair this, this event this evening. My name is Mary Evans from the Gender Institute. And I wanted to say just a few words at the beginning before I introduce the panel. What I wanted to say is that this event this evening is the first of a series of seminars which are organised in order to be part of the celebrations around the arrival at the LSE of the Women's Library. And what we're going to have in these seminars are a series of conversations, conversations which actually aren't going to be in the library, but of course about the material that is in the library. Before I introduce the panel, I wanted to say a few words of thanks to various people. Um, First of all, to the Gender Institute, and in particular to Catherine Giorgio for all the work that she's done in putting this event together. To Elizabeth Chapman and other members of the Library at the LSE, not just for their work in organising this event, but for their work which actually allowed the Women's Library to come to LSE. And finally, to Henrietta Garnett for allowing us to reproduce the portrait by Vanessa Bell, which is on the flyer which accompanies this series. So this evening's event is going to take the form of a series of comments from the members of our panel on the subject of feminism then and now. When when the panel has finished speaking... We very much hope that you will engage with what has been said and perhaps what has not been said. And through comments and questions, we'll be able to continue the conversation. So let me introduce then the people who are going to speak this evening. In the order of their first names, let me introduce to you Camille Kumar, who is from the campaigning organisation Freedom Without Fear, working with black and minority ethnic women on domestic violence. Natalie Bennett is our second panel member, the leader of the Green Party and founder of the Carnival of Feminists. The third person is Camille Kumar, a feminist activist, and um, I'm I'm sorry, I very much apologise. Natalie Bennett... Uh, first person, I should have said, and my sincere apologies, Yasmin Alibi Brown, a journalist and broadcaster and a regular col- columnist on The Independent. Natalie Bennett, Camille Kumar. Fourthly, Finn McKay, a feminist activist and lecturer in sociology at the University of the West of England. Pragnar Patel, Director and founder member of Southall Black Sisters, and more recently, Women Against Fundamentalism. And Lynn Siegel, a feminist academic and activist, the author of many books, and most recently a book on the politics of ageing. So, Yasmin, if I could turn to you. I thought I was last on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was totally last on the list. <laughs> But the list was sent to me. The first person, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> Women, 
I should not do numbers. This is <laughs> so to revert to those first names, let me tell you, and everybody else here on the panel as well, the order in which the panellists will speak will be Camille, Finn, Lynn, Natalie, Pragmar, Yasmin. Thank you. <laughs> so... Camille. Me? Oh. <laughs> um, can everybody hear me? My... You might need to uh, turn the mic around more. Is that better? Yes? Um, thank you for the introduction, Mary. So um, I just thought I'd start by introducing a bit of the Freedom Without Fear platform. So we were formed to express and foster UK-based solidarity with the anti-rape movements in India and globally and to give platform to black and minority ethnic women in the UK to lead discussions around violence against women and girls' issues, to make the connections between anti-violence against women and girls' struggles across the globe, to counter the imperialist racist discourse that the UK mainstream media bombard us with and to highlight the cynical co-opting of violence against women and girls' issues by various groups in the UK who are seeking to further their own racist, anti-immigration and Islamophobic agendas. Freedom Without Fear seeks to practice and develop a feminism that is working on the principle that until all are free, none are free. Violence against women and girls was for me, on a personal, political and professional level, the starting point for my journey with feminism. So it is this that I will start and I would like to share a story. Eki is a young woman I supported five years ago. Eki is a trafficking survivor and had insecure immigration status. Eki had multiple symptoms of ill health and was referred to us by the psychiatric nurse at a nearby walk-in health centre. Eki moved into our refuge and we worked together towards Eki's needs and goals. Eki was registered with the local GP. Eki did not feel comfortable or safe to report to the authorities due to the experience, her experiences of state-perpetrated abuse in her country of origin. So her decision not to report was respected. Eki's was referred to one of our partner legal firm advisors and received free legal advice to begin the process of regularising her immigration status. Eki was seen by one of our in-house counsellors and was able, as she was able to offer Eki a space that she had not had before, to heal, to learn, to trust again, and to begin to rebuild her future. Eki accessed ESOL at the local college and pursued her ambition to become a nurse. When Eki's immigration status was regularised, she was supported into social housing. Eki received legal aid to begin the process of bringing her two small children to the UK. Eki's determination, resilience and ambition, combined with the special support she received, enabled her to navigate this complex array of services, to heal, to recover and to create a future for herself and her children. So what would happen to Eki now? Eki is referred to the local service that is now run by a housing association as the women's services was defunded. Her worker is not an anti-violence specialist. Eki is taken to the GP, but the clinic refuses to register her as her immigration status is uncertain. Eki is told that she can only remain in the refuge for two days before she must consent to reporting to authorities. She is not able to access legal aid. The nearest ESOL course is 75 minutes bus ride away and Eki can't afford to get there. Eki is supported for 45 days and then she is told there is no funding for her to remain in the accommodation. Eki is deemed high risk as she has told workers that she will return to an abusive punter as she has nowhere else to go. 
Eki has referred to a MARAC, a multi-agency risk assessment conference, where social workers, police and other relevant professionals share her information. The next day, Eki is woken at 3am by immigration officers and taken to immigration detention. Eki is placed in fast track and deported before she's able to see a lawyer. I was asked to speak on what are the contemporary priorities of feminism as I see them. I see everything as a feminist issue, whether they are labelled as such or not, and all feminist issues must connect to other movements for social change. I'm a black feminist, and for me the struggles against imperialism, patriarchy and racism are entwined and cannot be separated. I facilitate a group for young women in West London who've experienced sexual violence, and when I told them about this evening's event, which meant that I missed our workshop, um, and asked what they thought was the main priority for feminism, one of them said, a safer world. Violence is the point at which patriarchy is most tangibly felt in our lives. And Eki's story is a clear example of the need for intersectional analysis in any movement for change. The violence of poverty, repression and abuse that Eki experienced and the impacts of the so-called austerity measures on her journey are clear from the story that I've shared. However, behind her story are more questions. How did Eki end up in refuge in the first place? What were the contexts in which she experienced violence in the UK and in her country of origin? And how is the UK government implicated in these? The dominant narrative of violence being perpetrated by sociopathic individual men against defenceless female victims does not ring true for Eki and hundreds of other survivors. In Eki's story, it is clear. The violence can be unrelenting, and there are visible and invisible perpetrators, as increasingly the forces of the state collude both with perpetrators and with other structures of oppression to torture women and girls and repress our voice, our aspiration, and our spirits. Within Eki's stories are more questions. Why is there a growing insistence on referring to violence as something that is much worse over there, or that is perpetrated only by black men over here? when that is clearly not the reality. The violence perpetrated by white men and by the UK state is completely invisible in our media and in our government rhetoric. We all heard about Rochdale, but did we hear about the 110 child victims on the south coast exploited by gangs of white men? Eki's story is nowhere to be seen. The UK government says that it cares about violence against women and girls, but what are they actually doing about it? The state has shifted its approach to violence against women and girls to being one completely focused on the criminal justice system. The 2004 Domestic Violence Act institutionalised this and the shift has been particularly damaging for black and minority ethnic women. For example, the widespread use of the MARAC. As you heard in Eki's story, the reality of the MARAC is increased surveillance of working class, migrant and black and minority ethnic communities. MARAC, for many survivors, replaced the very same power and control dynamics that they are seeking to escape. And currently, under the Anti-Social Behaviour Crime and Policing Bill, the government is pushing through the criminalisation of forced marriage. The government sees this as crucial. However, we know that the majority of women don't want to report to the police about the violence they experience, and over 90% of black and minority ethnic women state that the support they receive for a black and minority ethnic service was the most helpful factor to accessing safety and justice, the very same services that the government is cutting back on. This legislation is not about safety and justice. It is another example of the government's hypocrisy and its cynical use of violence against women and girls' issues to intensify repression, criminalisation and Islamophobia. So what needs to change for Eki's journey to be radically different? What do we campaign on? Is it against austerity? Is it against immigration control? Is it working to create a world in which violence does not happen in the first place? 
And as feminists, do we stop and reflect on the outcomes of our campaigning often enough? When reflecting on the work of the movement today, some thoughts came to my mind. The raised profile of violence against women and girls' issues has positive outcomes, such as funding for services. However, it has also led to competitive tendering for services, and we are faced with corporates like G4S winning contracts for sexual and domestic violence services at the expense of women organising. This raised profile is also used to justify increased policing powers and prison expenditure, leading to tragic murders like that of Mark Duggan and companies like G4S benefiting from the expansion of imprisoned and detained populations. Anyone who has had to endure the criminal justice system as a survivor of violence or their supporter knows that the criminal justice system is far more likely to traumatise a woman than offer her any sort of justice, yet criminal justice continues to be packaged and sold as a solution. While anti-trafficking activism has brought the trafficking issue to wider attention, the increased profile has also been used as a justification for increased harassment and police-perpetrated rape of women working in prostitution as their homes and their workplaces are raided, and we are seeing increasing numbers of women being criminalised, immigration detained and punished for their experiences of violence. We've seen a doubling of the foreign national prison population in the last 10 years, and we know already that one in three women in prison have experienced sexual abuse. We need to look at the impacts of the competitive marketplace we have all entered and how much we've been removed from the founding aspirations and principles. There needs to be more critical analysis of the ways our campaigns for change are exploited in the neoliberal capitalist society and ensure that we do not align ourselves with groups whose fundamental vision is inherently different to our own. I don't know that the priorities of feminism have changed that much since we started on this project of disrupting power, but the lessons we are learning are there and available to us as a resource that we must avail ourselves to. For feminism to be what it says on the tin, it must be continually evolving, shifting and diversifying. Where patriarchy seeks to enforce authority, feminism seeks to declare privilege. Where patriarchy seeks to create a single, rationalised truth above and repress everything else, feminism seeks to simultaneously hold many truths and be the witness-bearer to secrets. And where patriarchy seeks to divide, subjugate and conquer, feminism seeks connection, equality and collective struggle. Feminism is being rebranded, repackaged and renovated at every moment, put through a whitewashed, pink-pounded conveyor belt of commodification, and people are swallowing the bullshit, buying the wristband, the book and the T-shirt. Assertions of feminism and claims to the name come from the most unexpected quarters, and we must remain vigilant. In solidarity with the women who protested the takeover of the Women's Library, I would like to comment that this library was not saved by LSE, but was in fact a takeover in the face of much protest. 12,000 strong petition and an occupation, severely restricting access to the collections and removing them from their purpose-built home and one of the last remaining dedicated spaces of feminism in London. Feminism cannot be taught or bought. It is a doing word. And I will leave you with the words attributed to Indigenous activist Leela Watson. If you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Thank you. Thank you. And our next speaker is Natalie Bennett. No, I think it's Finn. Finn. <laughs> yes? Yeah. I think so. Is that yeah. okay? Can yeah. anyone hear me? Um, okay, well, yeah, thank you very much as well. Thank you for inviting me to speak here tonight. Um, 
I think that there's a lot of similarities between feminism then and feminism now, not least a lot of unfinished business. But before getting into that, um, I think it's useful to set out what the term feminism itself even means, what it means to me. Uh, and also when the then is that I'm talking about with feminism then, and also when is this now that I'm talking about. So to me, I define the term feminism as meaning a global political movement for the liberation of women and society based on equality for all people. Having said that, I know that there are probably as many different definitions of the word feminism as there are people who identify as feminist. And I certainly can't begin to know or to understand, for example, what the feminism of David Cameron might even look like. Um, Who knows? Um, And when I say the feminism then, I suppose, like many of you here, I think of the second wave, the period called uh, the second wave in this country when feminism was last at its height from about the late 1960s through into the 1980s. And when I say feminism now, I'm referring to what's called the resurgence of feminism and feminist activism that's been seen in the UK, probably emerging from around about the early 2000s. But to begin by looking back, from 1971 until 1978, the British Women's Liberation Movement agreed seven demands. They were agreed annual national women's liberation conferences, which took place across the country, and the demands still stand as a sort of manifesto or womanifesto um, for British feminism. So the seven demands were equal pay now, equal education and job opportunities, free contraception and abortion on demand, free local 24-hour nurseries, financial and legal independence for women, an end to discrimination against lesbians and a woman's right to define her own sexuality, and an end to male violence against women. So although great strides have been made towards these goals, they remain yet to be won, and therefore are as relevant as they ever were. But that doesn't mean that achievements were not made by the feminism of the second wave, of course. This was a moment of our movement which changed laws, wrote new ones, changed hearts and minds and saved lives. And the legacy of that period lives on in the rights that many of us take for granted today and not least in the services that exist to support those affected by violence and abuse, services which are still benefiting women, children and men to this day. In many ways, our world today is dramatically changed from that of the second wave, and yet some things remain the same. Younger women are still being motivated into feminist activism by the brutality of male violence against women, by the sexual objectification of women in our media and culture, by the lack of representation of women in positions of power and authority and influence, by the shame of unequal pay after over 40 years of the Equal Pay Act, by the disgrace that is one of the most expensive systems of childcare in the whole of Europe, and by the stubborn persistence of everyday sexist attitudes and outright misogyny, which show no signs of shifting. Sometimes it seems as if our laws and policies have moved on faster than our beliefs. And as Kate Millett said in 1969, the real test of any revolution will be in whether or not it can change attitudes. So we have laws on equal pay, we have laws and policies against domestic abuse and rape, we have laws against sexual harassment, 
We will have shared parental leave. We have more women in positions of power than ever before. And yet, rigid notions of gender roles, particularly with regard to masculinity, still have their claws firmly clinging into the foundations of our society. And the scars of that are sometimes more visible than others. So it often feels like in times of economic recession, times like now, they come to the surface. Tory cuts force women back into the home, relying on women's unpaid labour. Racism and homophobia flourish as the right gains ground. And disempowered and marginalised men hold on to aggression, physical force and violence as the basis, last resorts of a visible masculinity. None of any of these problems will be solved overnight, but nobody ever said saving the world was going to be easy. But if we are to do it, then I think we need feminism, perhaps now more than ever, because feminism identifies not only symptoms and problems, but causes Feminism hasn't been afraid to problematise masculinity, to demand changes from men as a group, from men as a class, and when necessary, to take and make those changes for the benefit of us all. But too often, in the feminism of now, this radicalism appears to be missing. And indeed, the P word, patriarchy, often feels like it's the modern Friedan-style problem with no name. And that's just one example of where I believe the feminism of today could perhaps do with looking back a bit more often. But to conclude, feminism then was an unfinished revolution. Feminism now is about finishing the job. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here on such a diverse panel and to see such a diverse audience, particularly uh, in the area I've been uh, thinking about most recently, cross-generational, but uh, mixed in many ways. So, discussing feminism then and now is always tricky because we all have our own narratives about both then and now. And for then, I'm thinking we're talking about the beginning of second wave feminism at the close of the 1960s. And it's, it's always tricky because how and where and when we come into feminism is both a personal as well as a contextual matter. And what's more, feminism certainly vibrant and alive both then and increasingly now was always a site of endless controversy and struggle. It was messy and we fought over everything and we're still fighting although we're probably going to be very restrained on this platform, (laughs) I suspect. Um, (laughs) In fact, um, the more we've lasted, as we have lasted, um, uh, the more diverse in some ways we've become, such that um, some wings of feminism barely seem to touch each other, although I think certain emphases on equality, on looking globally, on collectivity are going to be the ones we all share, as well as thinking about the divisions and diversities of our lives as women. So, back then, I usually start with the thunderous words of uh, that pioneer of second wave feminism, Robin Morgan, when she sat in on the New Left magazine, Rat goodbye to all that. We want to hear the voices on the left that haven't been heard before. We want to hear from women. The aim then was to give voice to those whose voices weren't heard. 
Women's voices would be heard to differing degrees, depending on where we were coming from, which was soon going to be a big issue for feminism. But very quickly, joy spread amongst those women who were hearing the feminist voice. However, women's liberationists weren't really as dismissive as that new left politics, as um, Morgan's slogan might um, suggest. In fact, the utopianism of the new left was very much what was so alive in early 70s feminism. The utopianism of notions which get developed further by feminism, of politics from below, of questioning issues of leadership, collectively thinking about consciousness raising, which was all about bringing culture and personal life into politics. That comes from the new left, but it's developed far more strongly from, um, on, uh, uh, amongst feminists, alongside the significance, as it was very significant then, of anti-imperialist and anti-war struggles. So what was there then is partly recognisable today. And in many ways, feminism carried that tradition of the new left back development, developed it to highlight women's subordination, women's oppression by men as a key, for some the key, but for me a key source of oppression in society everywhere. Moreover, to recall feminism 40 years ago, to have this archive of the women's library, is so critical it seems to me, and uh, as, as uh, uh, we've been hearing, pre precisely because of the way in which the radical and revolutionary ideas of feminism from the late 60s have been twisted and um, sometimes, sometimes partially turned around with different meanings in the different contexts of today. Yes, we did talk about women's autonomy, women's bodies, women's choice, and so on, but never solely in terms of individual aspirations, detached from wider issues of equality and collective goals, in terms of working for the greater freedom and agency and better lives for all, for all, even men as well as women. <laughs> that's what made it revolutionary, and that's what remained distinct about most forms of feminism over the decades, that attempt, however complex and difficult, to connect personal and cultural issues in the complex arena of women's lives with broader economic issues and strategic analysis. This meant that feminists needed to, and we often did, and of course many still do, work on all fronts the gendered politics of home life, intimacy and community involving especially men's violence against women and the general social dependence of, of society generally on women's undervalued domestic labour with the need for equal pay, better jobs, job prospects and fuller representation of women in the political and cultural sphere always also on the agenda. So this was truly a radical and cultural form of equality, a radical cultural and political form of equality, but one which necessitated transforming the very meanings of language itself around notions of autonomy, 
independence, work, culture, pleasure and politics that weren't merely about individual aspirations. All that, it seems to me, was intrinsic to feminism 40 years ago, even though we didn't agree then or since on quite how we were going to achieve these radical goals. Most significantly, too, women knew then, but in ways that would be increasingly voiced by women who at first felt excluded from women's liberation, that we are divided by class, race, ethnicity, region, sexuality, and more, what today is usually theorised as intersectionality. All this will appear in those archives. However, one critical difference between back then and now is the way in which feminism has been selectively mainstreamed. Thus, some feminist issues are voiced, though certainly very far from eliminated, as we've already heard, such as recognition of rape, battery, and sexual abuse of children, something which wasn't recognised, which there were barely words for um, as the 1970s kicked off. Um, and overwhelmingly associated, oh dear, with coercive forms of masculinity. So, <clears throat> so too has women's right to choose been recognised and voiced, though in conditions in which it can be very hard for women to actually be able to make a choice. And so too issues of gender parity are talked about, especially at professional levels, equality in the boardroom, as distinct from equality overall. So other issues, then, are simply swept aside, such as the need to reform the workplace and legislate for greater equality on all fronts if women overall and people generally are to exercise genuine control over their lives. For this would necessitate, of course, greater control over capital and the free market. And what we've seen is the very opposite. What we've seen is indeed a redistribution, as feminists called for, but a redistribution in the opposite direction. As the geographer uh, David Harvey says, what we've seen is is money flowing forever upwards from the poor up to the business elite. Meanwhile, global inequalities... um, have kept increasing, which has meant closing down those borders, as Camille said, and rising militarisation, warfare and uh, violence on every front, distinctively violence against women, but from men against women, but also violence between men. So, in many ways, the world we have now could hardly be more different from those utopian... um, dreams that we had then. And we do have a form of liberal feminism today, of which Louise Mensch was the uh, best-known voice, which has led some people to say that it's feminism itself which helped en- engineer le- neoliberalism. Well, you won't be surprised to hear I reject that. There was always a muted liberal feminism. Even back then, there were one or two Tory feminists. There are a lot more today. But I see those voices as a product of, not a cause of, neoliberalism. So today, of course, as ever, we need to keep expanding our horizons, especially thinking about how to engage with um, global corporate capital as well as keeping a razor-sharp focus on women's lives wherever they are and the very distinct and particular ways in which those women are, many of them, going to be held back 
from leading sustainable lives in a world that we hope to see that would have a sustainable future and non-polluting and environmentally uh, sustainable ways of uh, us all living together in peace, harmony and equality. Okay, um, I'm delighted to see the turnout this evening. I've got to start with that. It's absolutely one more sign that the, feminism, the feminist movement is alive and kicking hard. And given the state of the world, that's something we definitely need to be. Now, the topic we were given was feminism then and now. And as we all agreed in the green room upstairs, we'd all asked ourselves a question, when was then? <laughs> And luckily, we actually almost all came up with different answers, which makes your <laughs> evening more interesting than it would be otherwise. We're marking the move of the Women's Library here to LSE. And as Camille said, we sadly lost in East London a wonderful, purpose-built, lottery-funded, practically new, excellent facility. It's a reminder of how women's groups, women's organisations have always struggled for long-term sustainability, long-term funding. So I thought, in kind of memory of that loss, that I'd focus on what I remember most about visiting the Women's Library there in East London, which were some of those wonderful suffragette banners that were displayed in the central courtyard. And when I looked back on my notes of visits to the Women's Library, there was one that just stuck out in my mind. It wasn't a, a particularly famous banner, but I think it's a rather notable one. It was made in 1908, designed by Mary Lowndes, and I think we should always try and remember the names of our foremothers and the things they did, so that's why I've included that. And it was from the Women's Shorthand Writers Group, not your most obvious radical group, and their slogan was, Shorthand Writers, Speed Fight On! <laughs> And if you think about what the enemy they were fighting then, I'd identify what we could call an ideology of what the female was, intellectual and physical frailty, need to preserve purity because femininity was lost if purity was lost, the claim that women were unfit for public life in any form, even voting. If women got the vote, homes were going to fall apart, children would be uncared for, women turn into sexualised harridans just by the mere act of winning the vote. It was an argument that frequently descended into clutching some really quite curious straws. I particularly like the one about we can't give women the vote because you know what they'll do? They'll go down to the polling station and vote and then they'll go home and change their clothes and come back and vote again. <laughs> Good idea. This, this rather reminds me of um, the many debates I have with climate change deniers. <laughs> Similar arguments. And even when we go back to that then, even our friends were struggling out to work out how to accept our presence in the campaigning world. One of my favourite quotes comes from a title of a study of women's groups in Liverpool between 1890 and 1920. This is the title of the book. And it was said by a trained union leader who wanted to praise and include a female campaigner. And this was the best thing he could think of. 
Mrs. Brown is a man and a brother. (laughs) (laughs) So identifying the enemy then was pretty easy, really. But I think now it's probably a bit more complicated. On the level of rhetoric, at least, few would deny the right of women to be involved in public life, in paid employment, and given at least equal treatment. Well, that's unless you count a certain Nigel Farage, (laughs) an ex-city man himself, you might recall, who this week came out and said that working mothers were worth less in the city. But I wouldn't really count him as counting at all, really. (laughs) But if we're going to identify one single enemy, it's a force not specifically directed against women, but one that's doing them immense damage. It's the ideology of neoliberalism, of small government, of austerity, of the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few. Others tonight have, and no doubt will, talk about other critical issues like violence against women, the gender segregation, the gender exclusion that we still see in our workplaces and in our politics. But I think I can go to the words of the historian Sheila Robotham. She said, referring back to the 70s, We thought welfare-based capitalism would be democratised. We didn't believe it would be so radically diminished. I turned to a piece of research from the Fawcett Society, and I guess I should make a declaration of interest here because I'm actually one of the trustees of the Fawcett Society, which has been going back, going since back before the then I identified in the 1860s. And this research from the Fawcett Society shows that the average woman in Britain over her lifetime, one-fifth of her income will come from benefits. The average man, it's one-tenth. So benefits are twice as important to us as they are to men. And the slashing of benefits, the cutting of the bedroom tax, the council tax benefit, the welfare benefit cap, the slashing of legal aid that's already been referred to this evening... All of these attempts to make the poor pay for the crisis created by the rich, the overwhelmingly male bankers, are significantly falling more heavily on women. And the loss of services means women as carers, as community stalwarts, as the final backup, they're facing an even heavier load. The Women's Budget Group last year crunched the figures. Single pensioners, predominantly women, have lost more than 10% of their income. Single parents, 92% female, have lost 15.6% of their income. Public sector jobs dominated by women are being slashed, while 63% of private sector jobs, which are of course very often what used to be the public sector jobs, just now privatised with worse pay and conditions, are going to men. The gender pay gap is growing. And those are the numbers... And they're horrifying, but it's when you really come down to the individual stories that you really recognise what this actually means. Many of you may know Jack Munro of the blog A Girl Called Jack. And she spoke at Green Party Conference in the spring. And when she'd finished speaking, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And she spoke about her personal experience of desperate, grinding poverty, of being in the house with a three-year-old, feeding that three-year-old a Weetabix, one of the last pieces of food in the house, and how she felt when the three-year-old said, more, mummy, and there wasn't any more. 
Our levels of inequality in Britain have raced past those of the 1930s and they're heading into the Edwardian era. More for those at the top means less for those at the bottom. And I think a few years ago, it was a huge barrier to addressing this. The ideology of neoliberalism had such a stronghold that voters, people in the street, would just shrug and say, well, this is just the way things are, they're bad, but there's no alternative. But I think there's a growing, increasing realisation that we can't build a society on minimum wage, zero-hours contracts, that relying on family care for the infirm and disabled can't work in a society where two wages are a minimum for survival. While the government has us all working to age 70 and beyond, that rich multinational companies actually do have to pay their taxes. There's a recognition that our society has to change, but what's less clear is what it has to look like. In the Green Party, we've got lots of ideas a basic income for every member of society so that they don't have to worry about putting food on the table or a roof over their heads, cutting full-time hours to allow a different work-life balance for everybody, banning zero-hours contracts and making the minimum wage a living wage. But to keep it simple and to conclude, I'd like to make a simple claim for every woman, every person in Britain. They should have the access to enough resources for a basically decent life. Good food, a warm, comfortable home of an adequate size, the ability to, when you want to meet up with some friends, to be able to afford to jump on the bus and join them in a cafe for a cup of tea, without worrying about money, without thinking, I won't eat tomorrow if I do this today. Britain is the sixth richest economy in the world. We can afford to do this. I'm going to finish with a quote from Sheila Robotham again, and I heard her launching her most recent wonderful book. In the 70s, when we assumed that you made a gain, it would stay there. And yet we know we've been going backwards for decades. We don't need to go back to the suffragette era of those wonderful banners. Our vote isn't under threat. But the gains of decades of the welfare state, the evolution of the workforce to give women the protections of maternity leave, sick leave and stable, secure employment, the access to education and training in this era of soaring student debt, they're all under threat. We need to fight them. And this, I believe, is the major feminist battle of now. And it's the major battle for every Briton who's in what Occupy calls the 99%. We are in this fight together and we've got to win it. Okay, thank thank you very much for the invitation to this event. Um, It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege, I think, to be here amongst these speakers and with all of you to uh, discuss what I think is a struggle for feminism. Um, Feminism then and feminism now, I wasn't sure what then meant either. I decided to focus on when I got involved and to trace developments since then. 
So if I look back at feminism that I, the black feminism that I was involved in at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, I would single out three aspects that I think were key to our success and to the achievements of feminism generally. Um, first was the attempt to develop what is now fashionably referred to as intersectional analysis, connecting race, gender, and class as a way of thinking and doing feminism. In the late 80s, feminism as a political movement was in full swing on many fronts. Campaigns, for example, for equal pay, better working conditions, the right to abortion, and protection for victims of domestic violence were just some um, areas in which feminism um, was, uh, some areas that feminism occupied. But black feminism was also knocking hard at the door of, at the, at the, door of the dominant strands of feminism, challenging them to divest themselves of their ethnocentrism and to take account of the experiences of black and third world women. We tried to show how the processes of race, class and gender intersected and had differential impact on women from different social and ethnic groups, both nationally and internationally. For example, we challenge feminist understandings of the family and the state by demanding the need to also look at the impact of racist immigration and nationality laws, police brutality, the virginity testing of Asian women, forced sterilization of women in the third world countries and in many other ways. We argued that these were also political priorities for feminism. But I don't want to paint a romantic picture of black feminism <coughs> either. Even amongst black women, there were contestations, often reflecting different political perspectives and priorities. But there was an attempt to forge an intersectional analysis that examined the, li that examined the links between sexuality, race, class, and gender, <coughs> and to break out of the parochial concerns by developing an internationalist perspective. The second area I think that we achieved some success is that we thought and organized under the term black because we saw this as a secular and unifying term. Black political identity was not uncontested either, but it was generally accepted as secular and non-sectarian. And the focus very much was on unity across caste, religion, and ethnicity. Needless to say, it is this that has become incredibly difficult to retain because now we're swimming against the currents of racism and sectarianism. But I believe that it is all the more important to do so because the adoption of that identity at least allowed for the possibility of coalition building and alliances between and within different communities. And although we developed black women's projects groups like SBS at least, located ourselves in wider social movements, even if we had to contest these same movements for space and legitimacy as black women. We tried to forge alliances with other progressive social movements. We tried to bridge the gap between anti-racism, feminism, and socialist left politics. 
The third area is that we linked feminism to a critique of multiculturalism, which made it possible to challenge dominant culturally relativist approaches to issues of gender inequality within black and minority communities. The history of groups like SPS is intimately bound up with challenging aspects of multiculturalism, which had its roots in colonial policies for reinforcing patriarchal power relations in our communities and for treating minorities not as democratic actors in their own right, but as objects of social policy. We have gone on to successfully challenge state and community practices that justify and excuse violence against women and perpetuate a culture of silence and denial. Despite operating in contexts of great hostility, these efforts have led to new laws, improved legal interventions, and helped to create statutory guidelines on a range of issues, such as domestic violence, honour-related crimes, forced marriage and child abuse. But what happened to this promise, the promise of such a platform? I think the answer to that question also points to what I think should be the priorities for contemporary feminism. Since 2000 or so, we have seen the triumph of the neoliberal project worldwide. Far from bringing about the demise of patriarchy and racism and class inequality, the rise of neoliberalism has actually harnessed patriarchy and racism to devastating effect. Gender, race and class inequality is getting more and more entrenched. And we are going backwards in so many ways as the gains that we have made as feminists in the last three decades are being wiped out at an alarmingly rapid rate. I see the devastation wrought by the austerity measures, the anti-immigration policies, in the everyday work that we do at SBS in, in assisting women to exit from violence and abuse and to assert their fundamental human rights and freedoms. There are fewer and fewer services to turn to, and BME specialist services in particular are disproportionately affected, as many refuges and advocacy services have closed, and many are threatened with closure. The wholesale assault on legal aid and the social security system, the profound racist public discourses on immigration, and the inhumane state policies and practices on immigration and asylum and the closure of health services has left us tearing our hair out because successive governments have increased rather than decreased the gap between the rhetoric on the rule of law and human rights and the reality. We have seen the privatization of what were once functions of the welfare state and the result is that it's becoming harder and harder to make these institutions accountable in law or otherwise. All of this is a product of neoliberalism in which patriarchy is given free reign. But one effect of the shift from the public to private, which many, including those on the progressive left, have failed to tackle, is that this climate has also been conducive to the rise of religious fundamentalism and authoritarianism. Fundamentalist or religious right forces are increasingly occupying the vacuum created by the withdrawal of the welfare state and the de-democratization of society 
And this is, of course, not just a domestic phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. In the UK, minority identities are completely fragmented along religious lines, and this has left little or no space for alliance and coalition building in progressive ways. The only alliance building that's now going on is largely to do with developing interfaith networks and forms and forums. This shift from multiculturalism, ironically a concept that we are now forced to defend, to multi-faithism, or the faith-based approach to minorities, contributes to a set of policies aimed at privileging religion by recognizing and protecting religious identity. What were once secular community organizations, including women's organizations, are now going through a process of communalization, a process which involves addressing the needs and interests of minorities through the lens of faith or religion. This approach, which is based on identity politics, reinforces unequal gender and other power relations within minority communities and gives religious right actors, fundamentalists and so-called moderates centre stage as providers of welfare services and as arbiters in administering justice, increasingly to the detriment of women's rights. Disconcertingly, these religious fundamentalist forces deploy the language of equality, discrimination and human rights only to subvert the very principles, to blur the distinction between religion and politics in public spaces and to reinvigorate patriarchal structures. One important consequence of this is the shrinking of the secular spaces that we created and which we saw as a necessary precondition for black and minority women's struggles for freedom in the personal and public spheres. And if we need any examples, see the recent battles against gender segregation in universities and the increasing struggle that we're waging to keep law and religion separate. Unlike the 80s and the early 90s, I think what makes the ground beneath us even more shaky is that new forms of religious identities have become the counter-hegemonic framework of resistance to racism, neoliberalism, and imperialism. And that makes coalition building that much more difficult. Social movements have actually embraced and given space to religion and religiosity in their movements without questioning values. This is as true of feminism as of other social mobilizations. But as has been pointed out, what we are left with is an increasing gap between movements for social justice and movements for gender equality. There is no question that where we once linked feminism to a critique of the multicultural project, our task is now to link feminism to a critique of multifaithism and to the struggle for secularism. A secular civil society and state that doesn't deny the right to freedom of religion, but that equally doesn't use the right to manifest religion to trump gender equality or undermine universal standards of human rights. The challenge to gender equality comes, however, not just from religious fundamentalist agendas, but also from state agendas, which seek to opportunistically instrumentalize gender equality to pursue other agendas that are racist and geopolitically imperialist.
We have to, for example, be mindful of the ways in which the state in the UK and much of Northern Europe is also co-opting issues like forced marriage and honour crimes to pursue racist policies on integration, immigration and the war on terror. This requires a Herculean effort from all of us to turn our gaze and be eternally vigilant in many directions at once. And to sum up, I think one of the most urgent tasks that feminism faces is to build a progressive feminist movement that is able to challenge globe-spanning systems of power, patriarchy, neoliberalism, racism, and religious fundamentalism, because they are, as Cynthia Coburn pointed out recently, each other's environment. Each takes account of the other, responds to it, uses it, shapes it, and is shaped by it. So I think contemporary feminism is a lot to contend with. It makes me almost look back to the 80s, dominated as it was by Thatcherism, almost with longing. (laughs) Because at least then we were part of a movement that created the GLC, an important experiment in social justice. And we tried to develop a black feminism capable of facilitating coalitions across racial and transnational uh, across ra- that are cross trans uh, that are cross racial and transnational, and accre- uh, against patriarchy and global capitalism. Thank you. Well, I mean, goodness, how do I manage to? add anything to these uh, stirring papers. What I thought I would do most usefully, being last on the list, is what um, Martin Amos once famously called thought experiments. So I, I haven't written a paper. I've just put together some thoughts. But I was thinking about then and now. I became a feminist at the age of 13 and three quarters in Kampala, in Uganda, On a night when I came back from a school play and I was savagely beaten up by the male members of my family and my poor mother could not protect me. I still have marks on my body. But the word didn't exist then, of course, but my mind changed and my mother was a feminist, forced into feminism without understanding it. She was the breadwinner, unreliable husband, all sorts of things. Then I arrive in this country in 1972 and I went to Oxford to do my postgraduate degree and for a while I was very disconcerted by then because the the things they were talking about seemed so distant from the challenges that women in Africa I had watched and witnessed. But I eventually sort of began to... I joined a group, and they they thought I was stupid because I didn't understand any of these big issues about sexuality and so on. But then, eventually, you kind of begin to grow into a movement, and I did. And then, and I bet you not many people in this room can say this, but in September 1977, when I was four months pregnant, I burnt my bra. (laughs) I did. It was a lazy bra. It was such 
a nice bra. It was a lacy bra. I had no money. I burnt it on a bonfire in North Oxford. Um, so that's the mood that I remember from back then. So where are we now? Oh, by the way, I think now I want to say welcome to the men in this room. Then none of you would have been here. <laughs> so there has been a big change, and thank you. Not thank you in an abject way, but it would be very good for you to have attended tonight. Um, so where are we now? Sadly, Lord Renard is too distressed and poorly to attend this debate. <laughs> At that time, the likes of Foxy Man, like him, <coughs> would have got away with it without any fuss. I wrote in my column this Monday that over the years I have been asked by a Tory minister in Mrs. Thatcher's government to sexually service him in exchange for the use of an apartment in Knightsbridge. Um, yeah, this is all true. I won't name them because they're married. I would not hurt the women. Um, a Labour Secretary of State who, when I was debating just like this, in, a, in an embassy in London, kept pawing me to the extent I had to turn to him and say, will you please stop doing this um, because people will think I like you and I don't. <laughs> and, and thirdly, a Lib Dem peer who was so lecherous, pretending to meet me for political discussions, that I said, I'll write about you, you know. Um, but he knew I wouldn't. So we have changed. These women who took on uh, Lord Renard are kind of a sign of some progress because even people, women, are quite strong. You know, I have not felt able to make a fuss about these three ghastly men. And if you saw their faces and how they looked, you would think, what do they think they are? Um, but here we are. So I think we are in a slightly better place. I completely agree with the analysis so I don't want to go over it. I completely agree with the depressing breaking up of the coalition, the neoliberalism, the racism of the immigration debate, which the left now has taken on more enthusiastically than almost the right, which to their shame, you know, there's no reason for this. There's no excuse why the left should suddenly be caught in this language and this, these attitudes. But... So there is more noise in the air when these things happen. Women are more sassy, and I think we've, had some very, we've got some very good movements. And Finn, I remember listening to her just a few years ago, thinking, wow, there is this, this fantastic new generation. There are hell raisers now, but in a good way, you know, who are able to um, mobilize the new technology um, but there are also all the time things to make you utterly depressed. Just when you think, you know, at least there's something happening now which we then wanted to happen. You know, it's not a good time when the mistress of Hollande is reduced to going into hospital and the wife of a UN high flyer and an Indian minister kills herself last week over a man it's not a good time when, when you thought both these women are powerful women so where is this, why is this happening so I want to just put up some thought um, um, thoughts for this thought experiment because 
they will add to this fantastic um, uh, presentations. I feel personally the one thing gone missing from those times is political juice. There is a lot of there's a lot of activism. There's fantastic movements and huge changes that are happening, but the political thinking, the political energy behind new feminism, the latest feminism, is either too diluted or women almost shirk away from it. And I really feel that the, the politics needs to come back into it. I think some social trends are very complicated. I no longer feel able to talk as simply as I once did about patriarchies because I have seen too much evidence, as a journalist in particular. Um, okay, there are all kinds of very deep analysis that has to happen there, but you see women editors arriving in Fleet Street and doing worse things, actually. You know, why is Charles Saatchi still writing a column for the Evening Standard, for example, when the female, uh, the paper is edited by a powerful woman? You know, um, Margaret Thatcher, the empress of neoliberalism, was a woman. We can't deny that fact, and she used her womanness to bully men into creating a whole new system. Theresa May, I had an argument with a friend over Christmas when we were talking about the new immigration and all the stuff she's doing. I mean, nobody before, no male home, home secretary has ever been able to do the stuff Theresa May is doing because she wears what? Sexy shoes? No. Um, and my friend, who is a feminist from abroad, a white woman, said thumped her, her hand. We were talking about um, a male asylum seeker who was about to die because he was on hunger strike, and I was very exercised by that. And she thumped the table and she said, I will not have you criticizing Theresa May. She is a woman. Well, I did not buy into that kind of feminism. You know, I did not. Um, I think that the intersectionality has been well covered, but perhaps... Not enough uh, uh, thought has been given to the fact that to be a good feminist, and I think men can be feminists too, they have to be transferable skills. The judgments we make on gender inequality, you use the same skill when you see other injustices happening. You absolutely have to use the same templates. Otherwise, you have no authenticity. You can have no credibility. Um, it, and it is a much more difficult terrain. It's like we've got sat-navs, right? And it's easier, yeah? But it, how many times, maybe I'm stupid, how many times with my sat-nav have I ended up in a cul-de-sac <laughs> full of questions about, hang on, this wasn't meant to be. This wasn't, this wasn't where we were meant to arrive. And I, I do question, of course, all of us on this panel from what they were saying, that the, at the heart of it is this problem of the straightforward narrative of progress. I don't think there is such a thing. It's cyclical. It's bumpy. It's roads sudden abruptly stop. And it's almost as if the journey will never end. And if it ends, we've lost something, we've missed something. 
We've, we've had, uh, you know, uh, Pragna talked about the internal and external equalities, false expectations, how ahistorical um, a, a, the, the modern feminists sometimes can be. I cast no aspersions on those who are not. But Linda Grant t- uh, said something very in- importantly, and I quote her, we must remind young people that the rights that they take for granted were achieved by those feminists with whom they feel they have nothing in common. Rights which did not always exist, even in their own lifetimes. Well, I try and tell my daughter this, and she runs from me as if I've got the plague. Um, She doesn't want the word feminism near her, and yet she's a feminist, I know she is, but I wish she could understand the roots, the, 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 the journeys, and that there are two or three very quick points I want to put before you before I stop. We haven't, because it hasn't been brought out, the pernicious effect of a very good thing, which is the internet, the neurosis, the creation of body and self-hatred, of, which has been planted in young women just as they were succeeding in getting the top grades, in beating the boys, in getting into university, the thing that is now destroying them is on the inside. And there are so many of them, we don't even know the figures. The violence against women, pornography, the porno- porn- we've got pornification going on at the same time as a sort of self-invisibilization by women. The two seem to be fighting each other, and one is given to me as an answer for the other, which I don't buy. £63 billion a year is what the porn industry now earns, which is more than the combined revenues of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Yahoo, eBay, Apple, and Netflix. So think about that. I don't know if how many of you saw Biban Kidron's film on how that has damaged young men too men who are addicted to internet porn, what that is doing to them, their psyches, to the lives of their girlfriends and others. So I think there's another internal battle that is going on, which is so pernicious, which I don't know how the way the frameworks, the dialogues, the struggles of previous feminisms can even begin to understand or destroy or deal with. Thank you. Um, We now come to the point in the evening when we'd like your questions and comments. Um, There will be roving mics, so wherever you are, do please, if you'd like to ask or make a comment about anything that anybody has said, now is the opportunity to to begin to do that. So, there's somebody just. Thank you very much to all the panelists. It was uh, really illuminating to hear from all of you, and I appreciate it. Um, as you were speaking, I kept thinking, and uh, Yasmin at the end kind of started teasing at some of the things that I was really thinking about, which is the problem which I don't really have a solution to, and I don't know if any of the panelists want to weigh in on what we might do about it, that I see when I listen to the way that 
certainly in America, people talk, um, in the 99%, talk about how a lot of these programs that would diminish their own inequality are things that are damaging them, how unaware people are of their own oppression. And I think about my own life and um, how I sometimes forget, because I have all of these advantages that feminists before have given me, how I forget that I am still subject to patriarchal bullshit and how I didn't notice for months after a meeting when I was doing my undergrad degree that I had been forbidden from going on to a different program because when I had the conversation with the person making the decision, I was pregnant. And I didn't notice because I just assume that people are going to treat me as an equal human. And how do we convince people that actually there is a problem? Okay, thank you. Do you want to see something? Somebody here. Okay. Okay. Hello. Um, thank you so much for this panel. It was a real pleasure listening to you. I really, really appreciate it. And um, I was also very happy to hear from you and you bringing, bringing this uh, crucial aspect, I think, of intersectionality and, you know, bringing this um, negative impact of the neoliberalist project that we are facing as one of the major tasks in front of the feminists today. But I think um, we also need to be frank and say that uh, fighting with the, the impact of the neoliberalist project is not only a feminist struggle, it's also a social justice struggle, it's also human rights struggle, economic, social and cultural rights struggle and therefore it keeps me wondering in terms of I would really appreciate to hear your thoughts about the relationships and linkages between feminism, social justice and human rights Um, are these words meaning the same today Uh, or what is the role of feminism actually in the broader social justice and human rights agenda and here I'm, I'm explicitly saying not only social movements social justice and human rights movements and agenda that um, you know we can keep in mind while we continue doing our work thank you thank you what I'd like to do is take just one more question which is down the front here and then come back to the panel for their comments so. Thank you so very much. Um, I am from the 60s and 70s as as well and um, have been feeling recently um, with some medical problems as though I'm living on a different planet or did I go to sleep for, you know, 40 years and wake up elsewhere. When, when I remember all of us sitting in our women's groups every every week cross-legged on the floor in Minneapolis and across across the country our bodies ourselves published by the Boston Women's Collective, you know, claiming our lives, claiming our bodies, claiming our rights, claiming our rights to, you know, to walk safe at night. When? And then I'm, I'm here all these years later going to doctors and going to gynecologists who are referring to my uterus as my tummy. <laughs> you know, and that is very much the personal as, as, as political. You know, that, that I, and I learned a couple of weeks ago talking to my gynecologist who was very pleased and felt that he was very aware there is actually a society for um, psychosomatic gynecology. How frightening is that? There's a, there's a journal. 
I, I, I just needed to I, be here to get some support about moms as much as anything else. But we, you know, how do you approach with doctors who, you know, when I, when I confronted this doctor about this, you know, tummy business, and then he started talking. He said, he, you know, he said he wouldn't use that phrase anymore, and then said, I might need some surgery down there. <laughs> Is that, you Thank mean you. Australia? Agnes, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to come back on that? Because any of these points that have just been made, would you like to? Um, they're all big questions. So um, I guess in order of, in terms of how we remember um, and become aware of our own impression, I think is a really good question. <laughs> um, I think for some of us, there is you know, no way that you're ever allowed to forget. And then for others, it becomes a coping strategy to forget and to make, it, make your life livable. And I think for me, in, in part of the Feminist Project, you know, from time has been about sharing stories and that being a way to, to constantly remember and to help each other see privileges and the impressions that we all sit within and that kind of links well onto the second point around intersectionality and um, kind of your point around how the movements connect. I mean for me there is no separation between a quest for social justice, a quest for human rights and the feminist project and you know I didn't start with a then because for me the then um, I mean as a black woman my then is, is a forgotten story. It's not, it's not a documented History that I can go somewhere and find in a library. So I didn't want to start with a then because I know that my grandmother's grandmother's grandmothers were feminists. So, and for me, that there is no separation between those movements, that project for disrupting power that runs throughout all. Okay, thank you. Uh, right, well, certainly uh, the personal is still political, and that has a lot to do with the first uh, question raised. However, it's also the case that um, the political isn't simply personal. So while the, the personal is political, is an enduring struggle and will always be with us in, the ways, uh, in so many different ways. At the same time, um, I thought the issue of intersectionality was dealt with brilliantly, particularly by Bragner, as ever, in which she said um, how important that is, how important hearing all these separate voices are, and yet, as we knew then, in, in certain ways, it's shifted to make things more troubling today. Um, the question of identity politics and the tolerance of um, these new faith communities is something which is particularly troubling for those of us who want to, as many feminists always have, engage in coalition building, which is something um, I've written a lot about in relation to Beyond the Fragments with Sheila Rowbottom, so well quoted uh, tonight, um, and Hilary uh, Wainwright, in which, um, uh, well, we wrote that at the beginning of the 1980s, the end of the 1970s under Thatcher, which is interesting to hear. It wasn't such a bad time in terms of us trying to do coalition <laughs> building. And uh, in many ways... Although there's certainly many attempts today in terms of the anti-austerity politics and there are feminists absolutely organising against authority, uh, uh, austerity, um, it, I think it is harder to package it all together today because there's so many competing ways in which we're being pushed out in different ways. And so you know, 
yes to coalition building in whatever ways we can. You know, we'll never be all in harmony. But even here tonight, we've managed to find some harmony and uh, we just have to work out how we are going to work together through our differences, through and despite our differences, which can be articulated, but we keep going. Um, yeah, I just wanted to the first question about um, people recognising their own oppression. I just had a flashback to a moment of the day of the autumn statement, the end of last year, and I was on Five Live, and one of the people they had on was a, um, a woman who was a mother of two disabled children, um, and she was there to talk about how the welfare cuts had affected her, and she said something along the lines of, Oh well, but I, I mean, I know there are some people who are scrounging and getting at the system, but you know that's not me. And you know, this was on Five Live in the lunchtime hour slot, and we're at five two, and you don't really sort of start to tackle civilians in that space. But there is, you can take on the other politicians, but you don't attack the civilian guests. That's the rule. Um, but. Um, there is a huge problem with that, although I think probably in Britain it's starting to be less than it was. And I saw this as a real landmark. The first time the Daily Mail ran an anti-bedroom tax story. Uh, this was a story about a couple who'd lost their nine-year-old to cancer and had turned her room into a shrine and now they were going to have to move because of the bedroom tax. So it was a very Daily Mail story, but nonetheless the Daily Mail ran a story against the bedroom tax. And we are seeing a shift, I think, from the, from the rhetoric of two or three years ago. You know, we saw benefit scroungers being attacked just everywhere and there was no balancing stories, but we're starting to see a shift. You know, it's the Atos victims of the dreadful work capacity te capability tests who, it turns out, you know, are dying of cancer and die a week later, and that makes a story. So we are starting to see a change. And in terms of the social, social justice struggles, I agree with everyone else. You can't divide one from the other. You know, the immigration bill is absolutely dreadful for anybody, anyone who is an immigrant who, or who might be seen to be an immigrant. If you want to go and rent a house, if that immigration bill gets through, expect to have a whole lot of difficulty and to pay more. And that's for everybody. But there's also changes in the law that mean domestic workers who come here with their foreign employers, overwhelmingly women, are just treated absolutely dreadfully like slaves. And that's specifically, particularly a women's issue. Okay, thank you. Shall we go to the... Perhaps we could go to the audience again now, because I know there were some other hands up. I know this person here. And there's, a hand at, there's some hands at the back as well. So could we have your question first, please? Yeah. This person here. Thank you, everyone, for speaking today. It was really nice to listen to you all. Um, um, I think it was Ms. Patel spoke about building the progressive feminism movement, but I was just going to say there are a lot of women, obviously, I mean, I'm Nigerian, and I can testify that there are a lot of women who I know personally who believe that it is okay to be inferior to the man and that being being abused, some, some, their wives who are abused and believe that it's okay because their husband has that right. And how do we come together as women and be feminist and build this progressive feminism movement when there are women who still believe that it's okay? That was okay. Can we take the questions at the back, please? Thank you. Hello. Uh, again, thank you to all the speakers. It's been a really illuminating evening. Um, someone mentioned they 
shift in feminism between then and now from being a political movement to being a very social media savvy movement trying to get the message out and have as many voices as possible. I was wondering if uh, any of the speakers had any thoughts about how to take social media and combine it with a more political stance on feminism to get not just the message out but also to have changes made. Thank you. Thank you. Perhaps just one more question. There's, there's a hands at the back there. Well, my, my question has been partly asked by the uh, lady who, who just asked the question in the front row. Um, it's basically, what role do uh, women themselves have to uh, play in, in, in furthering feminism? And, and what role uh, do women play right now as a hindrance to, uh, to the promoting feminism? Because if you see... Um, uh, most women, uh, like me- when media objectifies women, for example, there are women who are actually on screen uh, helping promote that. So, how, what awareness should be created uh, in, in terms of women okay. helping themselves? Thank you. And um, I want to go back to the panel now and perhaps ask um, Finn, would you like to respond to any of those points that have been raised? Um. Well, I think the first uh, the question that you asked sort of went back a little bit to the one that was asked from up there about um, how do we how do we convince people that there's a problem? How do we get people to identify a need for feminism or even to understand that they are oppressed and that they are part of a system that is oppressive? Um, nobody wants to be seen as a victim. That's not generally an attractive stance to occupy. Um, least of all in our supposedly neoliberal equal times. And there is a problem, of course, in, in promoting feminism when the premise of feminism is that women still need liberating, and yet the message to women today, especially younger women, is that we are already liberated. And that if you're a strong and powerful, feisty woman, you're not prudish and you're in charge of your own body and your own life and your own career, then you're already liberated. So it can look distinctly unattractive to align yourself with a movement that says precisely the opposite. Um, And CR, consciousness raising, used to try and fix that. Mm -hmm. When we had CR groups happening in people's living rooms, um, kitchens, in towns and villages, big and small, up and down the country from north to south. That was about bringing women together to collectivise their problems and their struggles and to see that their struggles were not because of who they were or the choices they made or that they married the quotes wrong man or had children at the wrong time or were out at the wrong time of night. It was actually because they were women in a society where that so often meant second class and that many women of all different backgrounds faced very similar struggles precisely because of sexism. So I think we do need to build CR spaces again. We do need to maintain and protect women-only space. It's a massive difference between the feminism of then and the feminism of now, and I think it's a negative difference. I think it's a shame, and I think it's dangerous that there's been such a decline and hostility towards women-only space, and I think sheer misogyny and homophobia lies at the root of that fear of women-only space. And I think we need to question rather than condone that whenever we can. So I think we need to promote those spaces again, and we need to see ourselves not as victims, but as resistors, which is a strong and powerful position to take, which any woman should be proud to do so. Thank you. Um, 
I, I think that um, actually, despite the gloom and doom, I, I actually think we are seeing shoots of that kind of a resurgence of that kind of consciousness raising stuff going on, whether it's through te- through uh, emails and Facebook and so on, or whether it's in universities where we're seeing students set up feminist societies all over again, which I think is one of the positives that we can think about and again. Um, but I, I wanted to come back to this point about you know women colluding in their own oppression. And how do you how do you address that? Um, I think that it's very tricky. It's very tricky because I'm kind of quite weary of this idea of going up and saying you just don't know it, you're oppressed um, kind of attitude and approach to uh, feminism, a way of doing feminism. But this is where I think maybe this is where that intersectional analysis that we need to talk about comes back into play. Because I'm thinking, for example, about women um, who colluded, who who are colluding in right-wing authoritarian religious movements who are actually involved in shoring up and perpetuating the kind of patriarchal structures that we want to dismantle and and power relations that we want to dismantle. And the question is, and we do need a lot more research and thought going into this, um, and into contexts in which women are colluding in, in all sorts of ways as to why that happens. But I think it's also to do with the fact that they're colluding because they see other identities as more important. And I'm thinking of, for example, women in the right-wing Hindutva movement in India, for example. And by the way, we're about to possibly have a fascist leader as a prime minister of India this year um, who's part of that right-wing movement. And women who are involved in that movement who are actually encouraging, aiding and abetting the rape and the torture and, and the brutalization of Muslim women during the Gujarat carnage in 2002. And the question is, why couldn't they see sisterhood? Why couldn't you know, they empathize with the Muslim women that they were brutalizing? And I think it's because there are these other identities at that moment, the Hindu identity, the upper caste identity, all these things that come into play in different contexts. So the question then is to understand and analyze that context and how these different forces intersect and come together and which identities gain primacy and which are suppressed. And obviously the struggle then, the resistance against that, has to be a resistance also based on an intersectional analysis. And that is why a feminist movement that is just concerned with simple fault lines cannot work. We also have to be uh, see as feminist issues the issue of the rise of neoliberalism and the reasons why women are so disproportionately impacted on. We have to talk about the rise of religious authoritarianism and how that impacts um, and the rise of other forms of power systems that you know, subordinate others. So again, we come back to having to place at the heart of our feminism that kind of intersectional analysis and an intersectional form of resistance, I think.
Um, there are two things. Uh, I'm just bringing together some of the questions. My only answer to you about your would be Freud started this rubbish, and we're stuck with it. Um, but I, I think we should stop being quite so um, sanguine. When we talk about intersectionality, it all sounds very comfortable. But there is increasingly, and very importantly in a democracy, um, an emergence of the clash of rights. It's no, you know, everybody doesn't always agree that a, a feminist will absolutely agree with draconian laws against immigration. These are a clash of rights. So let us not assume that there is this package holiday that everything kind of fits in. You, the difficulty is there are, you know, the right to religious practice clashing with women's rights, for example, and women becoming the most extraordinary defenders of the sorts of rights that my mother's generation fought against. So we've gone backwards, as, as Pragna said. There are all sorts of clashes of rights. And how we then have these debates about clashes of rights, I don't think we're there yet. And these are the difficult debates. These are the, po- these are the points. The indiv- you know, I'm interested in how feminism has appropriated the language of the commercial emporium. It's my right. This is my right. I can choose to wear what I want. I'm wearing these high heels which make me teeter and look really fragile and men love me so much when I foot bind my own feet with, uh, you know, 400-pound shoes... Um, the language of choice and rights for me is becoming increasingly problematic because if this isn't a supermarket you know, where you are choosing this and that there are serious political consequences for these choices as in my view there are when women decided it was okay to have segregation, segregated meetings in, in universities it wasn't only men or women who cover themselves I, I think these are the clashes are the most difficult things to to have in a way that actually doesn't destroy us. But that has to happen. We have to have the language and the courage because in the end we all want the same thing. I think every human being wants equality, respect, a decent life. Um, but I fear that we are sort of dancing around the really difficult issues sometimes that come up. Okay, can I just ask if there are any, um, maybe there are just two hands, there's a hand up there and a hand up there. I think we've only got time for three very quick last comments and questions, but we can continue this conversation afterwards. But here, perhaps, if we could just take these, these three. So, if I could pick up on one there. There's one here. Could I pick up on what Finn said about women okay. space? Sorry? Could I pick up on what Finn said about women only space? I share um, very greatly Lynn's sadness at the loss of the women's library, not the collections which of course have come here and will be well looked after, but as a beautiful, physical, purpose-built space for women. Okay, um, thank Vir- you. Virginia Woolf said women need room- rooms of their own. The trouble is that when women collectively have managed to achieve rooms of their own, they don't seem to have been able to keep them. They've been taken away. 
looking particularly at the, the Millicent Fawcett Hall and collection of buildings in the 1920s, which was beautiful, purpose-built, fit for purpose, not tatty, um, and for 10 years became the address of the women's movement. And then came the war, the damage at Westminster City Council, and it was lost. Thank you. It was lost, and, then, and that seems to can be Can I just stop what you there? Yeah. Thank you for that point. So there's somebody here. I wonder, I mean, despite uh, Natalie being here, we've sort of missed out on sort of connectedness of ecology and feminism, you know, given the crisis we're in. Um, or maybe it's also a matter of a conflict of interests and rights as well, this one. You, you know, you've mentioned some, but with green issues and feminist issues. So, I mean, an interconnected is, which is more than just saying, oh, well, the root cause of the ecological crisis is neoliberalism. I know that. Something more than that. Mm. Okay, thank you. Just one last question there. <laughs> Can I just ask you for, for your comment, please? Um, I just wanted to say I'm really inspired and engaged and kind of challenged by everything you've said, but I'm left feeling like I want to do something, but I don't know what I can do, me as an individual, what I can do. So I would actually ask all of the panel if you could give us all something like a challenge that we could take away to go and actually kind of take this and, and live it, then that would be really useful for me and I think maybe for everyone else as well. Okay, thank you very much. That is a wonderful last comment because it allows me now to turn to the panel and ask everybody in one sentence to set out their agenda for what can be done. (laughs) (laughs) So, if I could start. One sentence. One sentence. (laughs) Um, Just reflecting on conversations that I haven't been able to talk about here, about kind of the religious... um, this debate around kind of um, or what's been said really about religion and um, and feminism and the potential clashes and I think the one thing I would say to take away for me an intersectional you know you can't talk about that without talking about Islamophobia and you can't talk about that without talking about immigration control and so the one thing I would say to take I would ask to take away and I'm going to do it too is to is to look inside because for me that's the that's one of the main projects of, of feminism is to disrupt our own sense of comfortability and our own, move outside of our zones of comfort and really, you know, as Yasmin said, kind of have those, have those clashes and really think about where the conflicts are and, and how we seek connection. And I think for me, you know, that's, that's the intersectional project is to kind of look at all the different, you know, the context in which all these different movements sit and what are the implications of talking about things in particular ways and how we can make our feminism more open. Thank you. Lynn. Uh, yes, spaces for women are important, though I don't think you want Theresa May or mention <laughs> in them. Um, and I think one way of bringing together a lot of what's been said is in the critique of neoliberalism in the broadest sense, which is sold to us absolutely through the language of choice and the language of individual rights. That that has been totally co-opted and twisted around so it's no longer an issue of collectivity and a common platform for all. If, If you see that, then it seems to me you can begin to at least address the issue of the clash of individual choices and rights. Of course we don't want to do away with it. Of 
course, it's been totally important for women, and some of our victories have been around rights to choose and so on, but that can only be seen in terms of collectivity and in terms of what it is that prevents most people, that, that simply makes a total mockery of the idea that most people have choice over anything about their lives, least of all where to live, where to work if they're young and so on. Most people have almost no choice and that's one place to try and begin, I think. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with the what to do question. Um, first of all, coming back to an earlier question, do tweet. I believe the hashtag is WSLSE. Um, go home and tweet that. Make sure all your friends know about what we've been talking about this evening. Go out, sign a petition, start a group in your university, your local community, whatever, wherever is appropriate, and vote. I was. <laughs> One more, one more sentence to address um, the, the lady down the front who asked about the um, uh, uh, ecology. Um, I actually cut my speech short at the end because I had a chair going tug, tug, tug at my arm. Uh, we need to have a society where everyone has enough, but that has to operate within the limits of our one planet. We're currently in Britain living as though we have three planets. Everyone has to have enough within the limits of that one planet. And that means lots of rich people have to use a lot less. I think for me, uh, in terms of what to do, how can we start, I think it's important to bridge the gap between feminism and other social justice movements. Everything is a feminist issue. Therefore, we can start in our own localities, whether it's preventing the closure of hospitals or whether it's get, taking the bedroom tax or uh, the, the closure of women's um, shelters. We can all get involved in those local struggles. But what we have to do is take responsibility of injecting those struggles with an intersectional analysis that tries to look at how what we're demanding impacts on different social groups and creates um, hierarchies of power and, um, and subordinates other, uh, um, other groups. So for me, an intersectional analysis that's injected into whatever local struggles that you can get involved in is uh, one way of moving forward. And if all of us do that, I think we can force social justice movements of whatever kind to make sure that the women's question and the race question and other questions are also to the fore. We can complicate things. They are complicated. Let's complicate them. But let's not be intimidated. Just start on your own front doorstep. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I agree. Our feminism will only progress forwards on the bridges that it builds between other movements. So, of course, that is something we have to do. I'm quite tired of this question about whether women are their own worst enemies or how women interfere in, um, in feminism and uh, progress an anti-feminist project. I think we need to remember that 
Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher are about policies. They're about right-wing, Tory, conservative policies. They were whole parties, and they still are, whole party policies that tried to rip the country apart in the 1980s and are trying to do so again. And that is much bigger than one woman or one man, and we need to remember that. And the allure of power... um, the allure of standing near to power, the allure of being at the table rather than being on the table, being eaten. We need to remember those things. We need to remember not to blame women for playing the game when they never wrote the rules. And there's no better thing to read about that than Andrea Dawkins' book on right-wing women, which analyses those women that do sell out and align themselves with patriarchy. Um, And my message to take away... Oh, no, just before that, one more thing, sorry. Um, on the consumerism issue, I have to say, I think it's the opposite to the way, you, the way that you've said, Yasmin, because I think that actually it is consumer culture that has taken the language of feminism, turned it on its, turned it on its head, and sold it back to us as a language of choice, rights, individualism, and choices have, of course, become a religion nowadays within a set of very limited options. My message to take away would be, say the word feminism a lot, say it's like it's the most normal thing in the world, loudly and proudly and reconnect with a revolution that is happening out there, one of the oldest social justice movements the world has known, our own. Mm